Hello, entertainment law nerds, enthusiasts, and aficionados, and welcome to another episode of the Dentons Canada Entertainment Media Law Signal Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Tarantino, and I'm here with my friend and colleague, Kareem Kazakevich, who is joining us today for the first installment in a series of, what are we calling these, Kareem, like sort of Q&A sessions? Yeah, I think so. Sort of entertainment law, building blocks, foundations, questions, things you need to know. I like it. So today we're going to be focusing on content ownership and control. But before we get too far into the discussion, our usual disclaimer. Denton's is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Please see dentons.com for legal notices. So, Kareen, what's what's the first topic we're going to tackle? Well, Bob, I think the first question, and let me preface this by saying that these questions, they're not super detailed and niche. I think that they're more general, broad things that anyone you know who's either an entertainment lawyer or who's interested in this area probably should know the answers to or might just be curious about. So our first question kind of you know, follows that lens, and then it's a broad one, but it's a very important one. So in order to ask it, let's, uh, let's imagine that we just finished a big production. We have hundreds of people working on this film, let's say. We have writers and producers and actors. A bunch of people are involved. Everyone's contributed a bit of their soul to the project. It's done, we have the file, you're holding it in your hand if you still use the USB key or something, or it's on Google Drive, whatever you wanna call it. The question is, so many people have worked on it. Who actually owns it? Who at the end of the day can say, that's my project? Is it everyone who worked on it? Is it the one who funded it? Who can walk away and say it's theirs? So big question, but an important one. Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And I think, To go back to what you opened with, I mean, I think while these are deceptively simple questions, they're really building block questions in the sense that there is a lot of nuance to the answer often, and there's a fair degree of complexity to the answer. So it's a great question to start with. So I think we have to start by recognizing that there's two ways of answering the question. One is a kind of doctrinal copyright law answer. And one is a practical contractual answer. I'm going to start with the second one. The answer to the question of who owns a film is usually determined by contract. It should be determined by contract. I will be so bold as to say. In other words, there should be contracts in place amongst everybody who participated in the making of the film, making it clear who owns the con- who owns the film, who owns that copyright protected work that has resulted from all of those contributions. So, in the vast majority of cases, that owner will be a single purpose production company. So, a corporation that has been created for the purpose of producing the film and everybody who is engaged by that production company from the director to the composer to all of the actors to all the crew members to the editor all of those individuals and anybody else who has contributed any kind of material or services to the creation of that film should have signed a contract which says 
I hereby transfer all of the rights and the things that I'm contributing to this film to that production company. So hopefully, if everybody's done their job on the contracting front, the producer, the production company will be the owner of the film. That being said, there are situations where there are contractual failures or people contract improperly and questions can arise as to the ownership. And at that point, we end up falling back into the copyright analysis. That copyright analysis can get pretty convoluted. So Karine, I don't know, do you have any sort of thoughts or guesses under copyright law as to who the owner of a film is? Now, it's funny that you bring this up because this actually just sparked a memory of film school, Corrine, uh, we're talking a couple of years back. And this exact issue arose with, again, a student film, but copyright is still copyright, even at the student film level. And we had an issue where the director of photography, um, you know, filmed this student film and the producer in question, perhaps it was me, I was not educated at the time, but now I am. I did not have a contract in place to say that the copyright would be owned by the producer and so forth. So when it came to distributing the film, the director of photography said, well, I made the video, I shot it and therefore I own it and you cannot <laughs> pass it along to anybody. And that was one of my first experiences with copyright failure on my part but I think it's a good question and it comes from the you know I think at basic level people know copyright as you make something you produce it you generate it you own the copyright in it all the intricacies of copyright aside at the very very basic level that's sort of what I think people think of copyright you make it you own it and in this context where you know the film has to go places or you want to sell it or you want to distribute it you have to like you said have that contract in place now if you don't um well what i did which is probably not the answer you're looking for is to quickly draft up uh, a contract on a piece of paper that said yeah you give me the copyright rights and you know, everything's fine which he did sign so it all worked out but i'm pretty sure it's not the answer that you're looking for <laughs> no but it's a, that's a good approach so i mean you're right though Let, let's talk about that intuition that you know whoever created the film is the owner of it because that becomes really challenging in the context of films because there's so many potential creators and so this has actually historically been a challenge under canadian copyright law there's nothing in the copyright act which tells us who the author of a film is right like the sort of core copyright concept is the author of a work is the first owner of that work with a couple of exceptions, like if they created the work in the course of their employment or if it's crown copyright, but let's set those aside because they're kind of boring. So basic principle is author of a work is the first owner of a work. A work includes cinematographic work, the defined term in the Copyright Act, which you know most normal people would call a movie uh, or any kind of filmed entertainment. But the Copyright Act doesn't tell us who the author of a motion picture is. And there could potentially be a lot of different potential authors or co-authors, right? Like it could be a screenwriter is the author or an author. The director is one of the authors. The actors potentially might even be authors. The editor might be the author. The director of photography, right? The cinematographer themselves could be the author. The consensus 
analysis, and this is supported, I think, by a handful of cases, uh, is that the director is the author of the film for copyright law purposes in Canada, right? So the contributions of everybody else that I mentioned, right? Like editor, DOP, composer, actors, none of those folks qualify as the author of a film for copyright purposes. The basic kind of assumption is it's the director who is the author. So now this ties back into sort of how we opened this discussion, which was to say, usually that director's authorship slash ownership will be altered by contract. So the director will have entered into a contract with the producer, most likely the production company, transferring ownership to the, to the production company. But you're absolutely right. Um, it becomes kind of challenging to figure out sort of from first principles who the, who the author of a, of a motion picture is. Uh, and again, the handful of cases that have addressed it and the academic commentary around it has settled on it's the director who's the author, therefore the first owner. So when you have those contractual failures, when you have sort of a, um, a lapse in contracting practices, uh, the person that you would look to as the first owner is the director. And so exactly as you did, you should get that director to sign something, transferring ownership over to the producer. There Excellent. you go. I wish I knew that several right. years ago when I was making <laughs> my student film, but now I do. <laughs> now you do, right? Knowledge can never come too late, all things considered. <laughs> um, so why don't we move on to our second question? And so this was, and maybe you can give the context for the, the context in which the question arose, but the question is related to the first, obviously, but it's slightly different, I think. And it's what is title and why do we track it? Exactly. So I think that the phrase cha chain of title, you know, is thrown a lot around in the entertainment law community. And I don't think that everyone necessarily knows, well, one, what that means in a practical sense, what that looks like, uh, who needs it, I guess, is also a question. Who, who cares that this chain of title exists? And I think, you know, title generally people, I think, well, one think real estate and the principles of ownership, I guess, are, there are some parallels there. But I think that chain of title generally in entertainment law holds a much uh, higher significance than just, you know, who generally owns the project. But there are a bit more of a there are more legal implications with ensuring that it's a clean chain of title. But as I said, I don't think that necessarily everyone knows what that means and what that looks like. So maybe that's our first question is generally, what is the chain of title and what does that look like in the production context? Yeah. And so I think the quickest description of it is to, or the quickest way to describe it is to observe that title in, in this context is really a synonym for ownership and chain of title refers to the set of documents that demonstrate who owns the project. So it might be easiest to kind of back our way into this by answering the question of, well, who cares, right? Who cares about title? Why is title important? Well, a lot of people care about title. So people who are financing the film, right? The banks that are putting up the money to get the film made, anybody who's investing in the film, uh, putting money in to get it made and, and expecting some kind of return on their funds all of the folks who are going to exploit the film. So the distributors, the exhibitors, uh, you know, 
theater owners, anybody who is going to be engaging with the film in some kind of commercial or exploitative capacity needs to know who owns the rights in the film because they that's how they protect themselves from getting sued for copyright infringement ultimately right they don't want to enter into contract with the wrong person they don't want to be surprised and find out that the person that they signed a contract with actually doesn't own the film and that somebody else owns the film and therefore they're exposed to a copyright infringement claim so all of these people care about ownership all these people care in other words about the chain of title for the film and as I said, the chain of title is ultimately just that set of documents, and it can be simple, it can be very convoluted, but it's the set of documents which demonstrate who owns the film. As we sort of talked about in the, our answer to the first question, usually that chain of title is going to consist of a series of what I'm going to sort of mislabel as contribution agreements. So people who have contributed to the film like the director or the screenwriter. Um, and all of those documents are going to kind of point to that production company. That being said, there's also a, a kind of precursor set of documents in the chain of title, which will be the set of documents which secure or obtain the rights in the underlying property itself. So if the film is an adaptation, let's say, of a pre-existing novel or a comic book or something like that, you would expect to find a series of option or purchase agreements which obtain the rights to make a film based on that underlying material. Similar sort of situation which arises if the it's a wholly original project, you know, the, the only sort of precursor work is a screenplay. There will be some kind of option or purchase agreement for that screenplay. Chains of title can get very convoluted, though, because if a project, you know, started a long time ago, and in some cases projects, you know, have their inception decades before they actually end up being filmed, uh, the rights can have flowed through a lot of different entities. They could have been optioned, the option might have been exercised, but then the rights reverted because the film never got made. Rights could have been purchased by somebody, that person passes away, the rights you know, transfer to their heirs, companies could go bankrupt, there could be sales in the middle of, of all of this. So chains of title can get quite complicated and can be quite lengthy, um, but ultimately it's kind of the metaphor of the chain that sort of each link in the chain connects to the next link in the chain so that you start off at one end with link one and you end up at the other end with you know, link 10 or link 22 and you can kind of pull it tight and there's one single causal relationship from the first link to the final link showing how the rights, where the rights started and how they've ended up with ideally the production company who now owns it and is going to make a film. That's a beautiful visual representation of the physical chain holding the production together. Do you think that the there are like that there are gaps that happen often, or do you find that producers and production companies uh, you know stay on top of this very closely, or is it easy to sort of fall into um, you know the trap of potentially not double checking an agreement or when an option ends, and then you are sort of stuck with that? Or what, what's sort of the vibe that you find when discussing chains of title. Yeah, no, it, 
It's a great question. I mean, I, so I, I think there's a couple of different ways to answer it. I think when you're dealing with sophisticated producers, so people who have been doing this for a while, um, or, you know, if you're dealing with studios who have entire departments who are devoted to this, um, they are aware of how critical having a clean chain of title is. And so they generally have taken the steps necessary to make sure that the chain of title is complete. And like, as you alluded to, you know, dates all line up and, you know, if an option period sort of terminates on December 31st, the option, they have proof that the option was exercised before December 31st and they have copies of the checks demonstrating that payment was made, et cetera. So for sophisticated parties, um, chains of title are usually pretty clean. You know, occasionally there'll be mistakes or sort of gaps that need to be attended to. Um, where it becomes a real challenge, I think, is for people who um, are new to the industry, or, or new to producing and don't have the experience and the exposure and, and aren't sort of aware of how badly things can go wrong. Um, sometimes you will see there that there are sort of gaps in the chain which, which need to be attended to. Those problems also tend to arise, particularly where there are um, projects which are based on underlying pre-existing works. So adaptations, like a set of novels or comic books or short stories or or remakes of you know, prior movies um, or television shows or whatever, Th that's when there's an amplified risk of problems occurring, um, particularly if, if the, it's been a long time, like sort of chronologically, like the, you know, the original novel was written in 1932 and then it first got optioned in 1965. Um, and you can get into some real murky waters, uh, particularly if you're talking about U.S. rights, because U.S. copyright law, particularly sort of prior to the 1976 Act, uh, is a real sort of minefield. There are lots of problems which can arise because of a lack of registration or a lack of renewal or a lack of notice. Um, you know, thankfully, we don't sort of face those same problems to the same extent in, under Canadian copyright law. But if you're if you're dealing with sort of foreign works, which are subject to foreign copyright regimes, particularly the US, uh, there can be some really nasty surprises that await everybody. Okay, so for all the new producers and entertainment lawyers listening, make sure that you've noted that chain of title is very, very important. Uh, Absolutely. Thank you, Bob, for, for elaborating on that. And I think that that maybe brings us to our last question, which I, I step, steps away a bit from the, you know, ownership and contractual piece to a degree. And the question is, you know, we've had all these people working on a production, everyone's, you know, heart and soul is in it. You have the writer and the director and the producer and the actors and the showrunner. I'm sure that everyone, you know, wants to have a say in how that product turns out. Now, of course, when you put a bunch of creative people in a room, I think that question will come up, right? Who ultimately gets to make the creative choice, especially when people have different opinions and different perspectives. And outside, you know, the formal roles of, you know, you are an actor, you are a writer, um, this gets a bit more nuanced. So the question is, who gets creative control? Is this something that it can be negotiated uh, how does this line up with an approvals process? Can you negotiate an approvals process? When in doubt, do we just follow the money and see who's funding the production? Who ultimately gets the final say? Yeah, it's a great question. So 
And, and it ties nicely to the earlier ones because I think generally our intuition might be, well, whoever has ownership has control, right? Like that ownership and control are in certain senses uh, synonyms or at least, you know, prominently overlapping terms because usually somebody that owns something controls that thing. So there's a lot of different ways of, of answering this. Um, I think the, let, let's start with the notion that ownership equals control. So it, it's often going to be the case that uh, ownership will track funding, as you alluded to. And so you follow the money. Whoever's sort of providing the, the money is actually going to be in control and, and will exercise creative control. To loop back to our initial question, properly drafted contracts should stipulate who has control. And so it should say in a properly drafted contract, something along the lines of the production company has final control, final decision-making authority with respect to all matters relating to the film, whether it's financial or creative or otherwise. That being said, um, there are other circumstances where creative control is distributed in different ways, or at least is shared in some fashion. So if we follow the money, you know, distributors who are the ones who are putting up the money in exchange for a set of distribution rights, once the film gets delivered, will often exercise significant degrees of creative control because they will say something along the lines of, we're willing to pay you $5 million for this film, but that film has to have these characteristics basically, right? It has to star these people. This person has to be hired as the director. It's gotta be based on a screenplay written by this person bearing this date. Um, and they will exercise control through their funding documents, providing that you know any changes to any of those pre-approved elements uh, require their approval. There are also um, certain creative controls or creative approvals which are baked into the director's guild uh, collective agreements, right? And so directors will have certain cut rights which are stipulated in the collective bargaining agreement um, and which have to be respected in the, in the director's agreement. Um, a particularly sort of successful director may be able to bargain for a final cut right, meaning that you know, they get the right to approve the final version of the film, which actually gets released. So you know, somebody like Quentin Tarantino, for example, I'm guessing probably has final cut rights on his films. Um, outside, of those con outside of those contexts, right? People who are putting up money and directors, um, it's unusual for any other contributor to have any meaningful level of creative control or creative sort of approval. You'll get some people will be, you know, able to like an actor, a very prominent actor might be able to obtain approvals over changes to their role as compared to, you know, the version of the screenplay that they initially reviewed and approved and based their decision to participate on. Um, but that's, that's sort of a, a relatively, bespoke and unusual situation. Uh, so for the most part, whoever's got the money, they have creative control uh, and directors have a certain level, guild, guild member directors have a certain level of creative control as well. Do you find that this could be a contentious point? Like if the creative control is not exclusive to one party and you have several folks at the table, do you find that this is often a point of conflict or 
you know, there's one person who just naturally takes the lead of this is what it's going to look like. Yeah, it, it can be a source of, of really sort of crippling conflict, right? Because if, if it's not clear who exercises ultimate creative control, um, as you sort of mentioned earlier, you can you have a lot of people who are very invested, um, both monetarily and emotionally and, and otherwise in the project, and they all think they should be the ones in charge. Um, and so if you don't have a mechanism for determining sort of who makes the final decision, uh, it can break down into, you know, gridlock, or deadlock um, very quickly. Uh, and I've been involved in projects where that has happened. I've been involved in projects um, where indeed, you know, an actor was given creative approval, um, much to the surprise of everybody involved. <laughs> um, and they had a contractual right to control sort of, you know, how they were depicted on screen and, and how the scene was shot. Um, and that was an enormous challenge and, and a real problem for the producers that, you know, ultimately it sort of got navigated around. But um, I'm sure getting to a place where we were able to move forward cut a few years off of everybody's life. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I mean, as with so much of what we do and as with so much of what we've talked about today, all of this can be addressed by contract and really should be addressed by contract. So issues of ownership, issues of title, issues of control really should properly be um, addressed in contractual form so that ultimately in the, in the event of a dispute, everybody can hold up a piece of paper and say, no, like, here's the answer. This is how this is supposed to work. Amazing. Well, I think that's the key takeaway of today's episode. Contracts are key. So I like it. Mess up yes. Stuff. Yeah. Hire a lawyer to do your contracts. It's perfect. That's right. Don't Amazing. try writing it yourself on a blank piece of paper. No. In a cafeteria. Like I ever, never, ever, ever do that. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks, Corinne. That was great.